Hello and welcome to The Premise. Bienvenidos, mi amigos. I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And this is, what, season three? Season three. Wow. We are in season three of getting to the story behind the storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do. That's what we do here on The Premise. So sit back, relax. Listen. Listen to your eight tracks. I dig you like an old soul record. <laughs> Enjoy a cup of tea, a glass of wine, a shot, you know, whatever. And you do you. You do you. We'll do us. No judgment here. We'll do us. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Premise. I'm Jennifer Thompson and I'm here with my co-host. Chad Thompson. Hi, Chad. <laughs> and today, listeners, I am so excited to have our guest, Adrienne Brodeur. She is an incredible writer. I read her book when it first came out in 2019, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. And it is, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Thank you, Adrienne, for writing this book. Oh, thank you for saying all that. Yeah, like, I, I just... I had goosebumps of envy and delight and all of the emotions, uh, you know, as one writer who was at the time working on my memoir, reading this incredible book. And, you know, dear listener, the story is incredibly compelling, but it was the writing that gave me the goosebumps, the shivers, when you would like, the way you would word things when you were describing Cape Cod and just, you know, boats on the water. I was just, I had to stop sometimes and like, kind of let it soak in like you do good poetry. So beautiful. Thank you. This is like reason for all of us to write about things we love, because um, I get that feedback that, you know, writing about the Cape or writing about mm. food, which was nothing I'd ever really <laughs> written about before, but it was so fun because I can just close my eyes and smell the smells and taste the tastes. And yeah. it's so pleasurable to write about things you love. So that's why they say, write what you know. <laughs> yes. That's it. Well, I'm going to read Adrian's bio, and then we're going to dive right into our questions. Adrian Brodeur is the author of the best-selling memoir, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. It was named a Best Book of the Year by Amazon, Audible, BuzzFeed, Library Journal, NPR, People, Real Simple, Slate, and The Washington Post. The book won the 2020 New England Society Book Award and is in development for film with Netflix. Is that still in the works? That is still in the works. Yay! I know these <laughs> things are like crazy. They can fall through at any time. but uh, They fall through, they resurrect, they fall through, they resurrect again. I guess it's all part of development. It's all part of development. Well, I just can't wait till I can hit play. And, and apparently and some it. people are comfortable with this. I know, right? I, it sounds... I'm getting comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't have a choice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I'm glad to hear it's still in the works. So Adrian's essays have appeared in the Boston Globe, Glamour, O Magazine, The National, The New York Times, Vogue, and other publications. Adrian is the executive director of Aspen Words, a literary nonprofit and program of the Aspen Institute. She splits her time between Cambridge and Cape Cod, where she lives with her husband and children. And she is working on a new novel, a fiction novel, right? That's right. Woo I'm so I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'll be more excited when it's done. <laughs> I, I gotta say, like, does it ever get easier? Um, 
No. <laughs> Dang it. No, I wanted to Dang say it. yes, but no. I mean, I am not someone who is tortured by writing at mm. all. Like my writing time for me is a really sacred something I do for myself. And since mm. I don't really meditate and I don't really exercise, like it's all those things for me. It's that moment where this is on my schedule. Don't mess with me. This is really important. And if I don't do it each day, I actually don't feel as well. Oh, um, but, wow. but actually like getting to the end of a book or doing a big writing project. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it ever gets easier. It, mm. You know, there are moments within it that are easier than others. I think there's that, you know, that center part of any book that always feels like the Wednesday hump of the week that yeah. you just have to, you can be very excited at the beginning when you're all juiced up by the muse and right, anticipating. Right, yeah. And then, you know, certainly riding in towards the end is thrilling, but it's that, uh, at least that's what I find that middle section. <laughs> you got to get through Wednesday. There's oh, no way. You have to go through Wednesday. Yeah. I was listening to an interview with an author just the other day, and she said, you know, when I was writing my first book, I had this illusion that somehow once I got a book out there and it was well-received, that that would be it. Everything would just be easy for me. I would never, no longer worry about being a fraud, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I can't wait to get there. And she's like, that's not true. You, you, <laughs> always, feel with, you always feel that. And I was like, oh. It never, you never really, I mean, maybe some people do. Agree a hundred percent. I mean, no, you're starting from scratch each time. It's not like because you make a beautiful dinner one night, you're guaranteed to make the, a beautiful dinner the next night. You still have mm. to work hard. And, <laughs> and there's even more pressure, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Wild Game is phenomenal. Um, I want to bring people right ah. into it. Again, Thank you so much for being here. Your writing is gorgeous. I want to talk about that moment. So for our listeners, you're 14 when your mother, Malabar, pulls you out of your childhood world and into her adult world. You become her co-conspirator. Can you bring us into that moment when Malabar wakes you up at midnight? Absolutely. So um, the setting was on Cape Cod in my childhood home, um, where my mother actually still lives. And it was um, it was well past midnight. It was a hot night in the summer. And we had these family friends up for the weekend, the Southers. And my mother, who is a fantastic chef, um, had sort of worked her magic and created this beautiful, beautiful dinner. And there was just a lot of electricity flying. There was, it was, you know, a lot of alcohol and everything was going well. And and at some point I escaped and, you know, did my own teenage thing and went up and went to bed. And um, several hours later, when I was fully asleep, I, I heard my mother come into my room and she shook me on the shoulder and she was trying to wake me up. My nickname is Rennie. And she kept saying my name. I remember her saying, Rennie, Rennie, wake up. And I didn't want to wake up. You know, I'd been sound asleep. I was sort of dreaming of this boy I'd been <laughs> kissing down on the beach earlier. And um, and she said it again. And she said, I need you. And I, she said, Ben Souther just kissed me. And I just remember my eyes popping open. And like, you know, it was just so much one of those moments with the before and after that so many of us have in our life. But it was just like, 
I had gone to bed as her daughter, as a 14-year-old, and I, I woke up as her confidant. And, um, you know, of course, in hindsight, I think what probably every listener is thinking like, oh my God, what was she thinking? And so on. But at the time it was, you know, nothing short of thrilling. Um, You know, my mom was a very charismatic, magnetic woman. And I was just, you know, always eager to be in her presence for her to shine that spotlight on me. And, and she did, you know, for whatever reason she came into my room and sort of anointed me as her um she chose her you. wingman on this ad- on yeah. this adventure yeah yeah and for the reader it's like oh my god you know this moment where your childhood is you know your innocence really is taken away but you were excited about it you write the book in such a way that like you are so excited to be the chosen one i really was and i think you know, I'd had a complicated childhood. My parents were divorced and they both remarried and my father had already re-divorced. And so this was when she embarked on what would become sort of this epic love affair, not that we knew that that very night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just, it was just an adventure. It just, um, you know, I think it was different because it wasn't my actual father, um, but mostly as a child, I mean, we all just want our parents to be happy, or maybe it's just me, but I definitely, I saw my mother as as an unhappy person, as someone who struggled with depression. The man she was married to, my stepfather, who was completely wonderful and lovely, but he'd had four strokes in five days right at the onset of their marriage. And so my my mother, who was this fairly young and vibrant woman, went from, you know, marrying the love of her life to sort of taking care of a much older man. He he became, you know, I wouldn't call him an invalid by any words, but he, um, by any means, but he had really aged dramatically overnight. And all of a sudden, you know, this this new man came into her life and she fell wildly in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was missing that piece of her, that innocence of of her young world, too. You know, suddenly she's a caregiver. I think in some ways, I mean, you know, one of the things that I muse about a lot is sort of, and and you as a memoir writer must think about this, too, but where do you start your story? Because you have such an advantage. And of course, I chose to start my story at this night, at this moment, but how different would your sympathies be as a reader if I told you more about Malabar's story, you know, that she'd been the only child of these very, you know, difficult parents. She had an unhappy marriage to my father. She lost her first son in a tragic accident. You know, she married the love of her life. He had strokes. You know, you could you could just you know, it all depends on the angle you're looking at things. So some people will say, oh my God, what she's doing is terrible. And other people sort of think, well, wow, she she still went for love, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she still somehow mm-hmm. had hope. Yeah. Yeah, she went for what, and for someone of her age, that was not actually very common. No, was probably unusual. not. <laughs> I, I feel like 
like you're really sympathetic to your mom. Her character is incredibly charismatic. I mean, she does have this like energy field around her that draws you in. She's beautiful. She's vibrant. She's this amazing cook, a great conversationalist. And yet she's also incredibly self-centered and she's yes. a narcissist. And But you write her with such empathy. Was that important that your readers understand your mother? Well, I'm not even sure that I went into it writing it with empathy, but I I think it's almost your job as a memoirist. I mean, some part of stepping in to another person is is knowing their backstory. And the more research I did into my my mother's history and her life, uh, I did feel more and more empathetic. Also, I mean, you know, I'm writing 40 plus years after the events of this Mm -hmm. book. So I've had Mm -hmm. a lot of time to work through some of this. If I had written this book in my 30s, you would have gotten a much angrier version, I'm sure. Um, So, you know, time has has helped to heal some of this, these wounds. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's very hard to, I'll back up and just say, there was this beautiful line from a Vivian Gornick book called The Situation and the Story. And I think I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to do my best. And it's a a book about how to craft beautiful memoir and nonfiction. And the line was, in order for the drama to deepen, you must show the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And I remember reading that line when I was just starting this book and literally taping it to my computer and thinking, Mm. that's what I want to do. I don't want to make this a mommy dearest. I don't want to, I want to not only um, do my very best to, to just to show all the gray, you know, there's no black and white. I wanted to show my mother in her full, you know, glory and misery, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, I wanted to do the same to myself, which I think is a mistake some memoirists make by by going easy on themselves. And I really don't think you can do that. But I also wanted to show how complicated uh, our dynamic was. Mm. Um, and I think that has to do with probably generations of <laughs> complications. Right. Were you a little afraid of putting out this very vulnerable book about, you know, these, just how you handled the situation? Because it wasn't just when you were 14. I mean, this lasted into your 20s. Yes. No, I was, I was terrified. Probably the weeks, I, I, strangely, I don't know if I had just blinders on. I didn't feel terrified during the writing. Mm. <laughs> it was the weeks leading up to publication that just every day I was like, Good what am I doing? God, what was I thinking? <laughs> I <laughs> mean, I really sound familiar at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I just remember just being beside myself with anxiety. Um, mm. And yeah, so I think I don't know that there's a memoirist out there who's told a true and compelling story that doesn't worry that doesn't, because yeah. invariably you're telling not only your story, you're telling your version of a story that affected other people and you know, other people are going to feel differently. And, you know, I wasn't worried. I think a lot of people sort of thought maybe I was, um, you know, outing my mother or something. I mean, the news of the affair, that whole, that whole line in the narrative was, you know, long, long revealed. So it was more, 
examining my own involvement and to what you said, I mean, that was the part that I was really curious about. I don't, I don't really blame the 14 year old me for this, my involvement. Um, but I do question why at, why at 20 did I, why did I keep stepping in rather than stepping back? There were all these impetuses for me to try to remove myself from this drama, but it had been, it was just such a tangled web and I'd gotten mm. so immersed and it, you know, it took a real fight to, to get out of it. I kind of wondered at one point if somehow your mother's place in your world, you know, as someone you admire was a tether for you. Like you needed to admire her just to hold on to your own sanity. That's really interesting. And I don't think anyone's asked me that before. Um, but I, I mean, tether is a is a great is a great word. Um, I don't know if it helped me hang on to my sanity, but it did feel <laughs> it did feel like she was a lifeline. Like I did, I, she's that person for me. And to this day, my mother is ninety years old. She is so ill with dementia, and she's been really just a different person and gone from me to all intensive purposes for years, and yet. She's the person, you know, if I'm, if I wake up at night and am having, um, you know, a conversation with myself, like my mother's voice is always in my head. I mean, she's just the person she's, she's the person I, I'm with, you know, it's mm -hmm. not my husband. It's not my best friend. It's not my kids. I mean, I, you know, obviously we writers talk to a lot of people in our heads, but um, she's, she's a very formidable part of my subconscious and psyche. And she was your best friend. I mean, you gave up a lot as a 14-year-old kid. I mean, you talked about going out and, you know, I think his name was Todd. You kissed a boy on the beach. And mm -hmm. after that, you you weren't interested in going out and kissing Todd because you were too involved in helping your mom kiss Ben. Yeah. Can I tell you something really funny? Yeah. <laughs> in the book, his name is Ted, but the real name is Todd. So oh, really? I just had this moment of being like, did I put the wrong name? <laughs> so sorry, Todd. Great. Now we're out of Todd. <laughs> Poor Todd. They're going to know about your thing. He's a good kisser. He won't mind. <laughs> um, yeah, no, That's I mean. hysterical. <laughs> I was like, are you a little prescient here? <laughs> um, but it was, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it definitely took over and it, she subverted my, you know, sort of adolescence in some mm. ways, sort of all the time that most people, you know, most people are separating in their teen years. I probably didn't do that till my thirties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a late bloomer. Um, <laughs> but no, I was, I was very connected. And uh, honestly, the truth be told, like what she was involved in was infinitely more fascinating than spin the bottle on the oh, beach sure, kind right? of thing. So it was, um, <laughs> you know, it was very, it was very alluring and um, seductive. And yeah, our boundaries were just terrible. She relied on you for so much, but I, I always got the sense that you didn't allow yourself to rely on you. Like you had to be strong for your mom. You never really thought about what you needed. Not until later. Not until later. No, it took me a, a very long time. And some part of that, you know, I think, I think this is probably true of a lot of writers. Um, but, you know, we, 
you have to be pretty empathetic to be able to write well, I think. And honestly, to be a good reader, too. I mean, some mm. part of you to read or write, you have to leave yourself and enter this other world. Um, but yeah, I'm not romanticizing my empathy with my mother because there was something deeply dysfunctional about it that I I really practically felt her feelings before I felt my own in some mm. ways. It was sort of always, you know what would my mother do? How would my mother react? What is wanted there? And I think it was because she was such a, a broken person that in some ways she she just, you know, I was probably predisposed to be a people pleaser mm-hmm. um, and so on. And she, you know, I don't know, I was the barnacle, she was the rock, it just sort of worked that way for us. Yeah, I think we are who we are too, right? Yes. Um, regardless of how your childhood had gone down, you'd still be this empathetic person. I this think loving. so. And I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. You, you're, you know, that way, that's the fundamentals that make a relationship what it is, right? Both mm-hmm. of your individual bumps and so on and how they all fit together. I find that you write all of the characters with empathy. And I think you go about your life with empathy. <laughs> it probably explains a lot when we talk about your success and, you know, in your business world. And, but I want to talk about like the empathy for yourself. And there's a point where you realize that, oh, wait a minute, this is, this isn't right. And you got angry. How long did it take for you to come to the place where you could objectively write your story and not be angry anymore? Hmm. Um. Or, or were you angry? Do you think that actually happened where you felt anger? You know, I I definitely felt anger at different points along the way, sure. Um, And, you know, I can, as we all can, we can think about certain things and and reignite that anger, right? Um, But I don't know, I don't know that there is easy starting and stopping points as we think. So I tried to write this book I think I was probably trying for much of my own life. I mean, I certainly have, um, (laughs) you know, skeletons of, you know, bad short stories that are thinly veiled fictional (laughs) versions of this. I have, you know, for a while it was just sort of, you know, my cocktail party patter, just kind of like, oh, you know, you won't believe what my mother did. Um, And I think for a long time, I tried to deal with it with humor, just as a way to not feel wounded by it. Um, And so, you know, I, I honestly, (laughs) some years back, I literally wrote sort of the rom-com version of being married to your stepbrother. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, and just, and then it was, I, I, I would say the thing that you know, I had many moments along the way where I'd have these sort of reality checks and know this, you know, I get it now with therapy, I get it. Or now this friend has given me this insight and I get it, or this book has helped me and I get it. But I think, you know, it's the accumulation of all those things. And the real game changer for me, of course, was starting a family of my own. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, the birth of of my daughter. I mean, it just, it made me so aware of needing to break this cycle and that there was this legacy of secret keeping and deception in my family. 
that I just needed to put an end to as a parent. And I think that was when I really understood, whoa, you know, I'm still, I still haven't sorted this out. And the only way to write this is straightforward as memoir. And, and I knew from that point uh, that that's how I would do it, except of Mm. course I had a baby. (laughs) So that doesn't necessarily make writing any easier. Um, Yeah. That scene in the book when your daughter is born and Mm -hmm. she's placed in your arms and your your mom comes in and now her husband, Ben, Mm -hmm. and you have almost this, maybe a panic attack, but you... I mean, exactly. So I, I was so excited for my mother to meet my daughter. I mean, I thought it was, you know, just so excited. It was her first grandchild. There she was, and I was rolled up on a stretcher because I'd had a C-section. It was at Mass General Hospital. I came up in the elevator. These doors opened with the ping. And I remember looking at my mom and Ben, and I wanted to say something like, you know, (laughs) meet my daughter. I don't know what I wanted to say. And literally, it was like an elephant had sat on my chest. Like, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't speak. I started gasping. My mm. face, according to my husband, turned bright red. I mean, I I never experienced anything like it before or since. And this very officious nurse sort of spun the table into my room. Mm. And I remember being like, "Wait, wait, what just happened?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. And and she and I was like, "Was that you know like?" She just said, "I think you had a panic attack." Um. Mm. So it was instinct. It was like this. All of a sudden, you're holding this human baby this child who's your job is to protect that child yes yes that was exactly what it is and and then the growing understanding that you know what you don't heal you transmit and you pass on and the Mm. real need to um you know heal is a strange word or a, a big word but to just get to it to understand it to dissect it and um to you know put the right words to it so that it, you know, kind of tell your story. Yeah. How long did it take you to write Wild Game? Um, well, if you don't count the 40 years of processing, um, <laughs> you know, it. The in the end, the writing did not take too long. I mean, I say that, and I think there was so much writing along the way, the bad fiction, the rom-com, the this, the that, you know. So, but when I actually got serious about writing a memoir, I'd say it took um, all in all about two and a half years. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. From, I know from- that you wrote a first draft and I had heard that originally you wrote in a lot of your adult self and that mm-hmm. you went back and removed it. Can you talk to us about that process and why you removed your adult self? Well, I think... I think it was a sort of a self-consciousness or something. So as I was writing the truth of all I was doing, sort of this adult voice, this sort of, you know, 50-year-old woman would come in and be like, no, now understand why I did it like that. You know, it wasn't quite so much, but, you know, it was just this sort of (laughs) older voice. And I think I just had to write all of that out. And then what I realized is just... um, that I wanted to tell the story. I'd always wanted to tell the story from sort of um, 
from these scenes. Like I knew all the all the big scenes. It's a strange way to write a memoir, but for instance, I knew I was going to start with the kiss. I knew that you know there was going to be the clamming scene. I knew you know some of the meals, and it was very helpful that my mother you know was a food writer, so I could track the timing and stuff by these yeah, documents and meals yeah. that came out, which was really, you know, cross check with your journal. Yes, mm. it was. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the lobster dinner I had with my future in-laws, like they were just the, the wedding, these moments, these moments. And it was just gaining the confidence in, you know, sort of the, the whole idea of you need to trust your readers. If you tell the story well, <clears throat> you don't have, you shouldn't have to explain the events or the psychological underpinnings, people will draw those conclusions. And I, so I wanted the, the front end of the book to be this sort of mostly pure sense of me at that age and what I was doing and experiencing and then, and then include the more adult consciousness as, as I, as I grew up. As you get older. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That opening scene is so brilliant. Well, let's talk about the title wild game. (laughs) It's no. so perfect. Yeah, and I and it was not the title. I mean, I had some. Oh, I can't even. I'm really blanking on what my very bad, sort of hilariously bad. If it comes to me, I'll I'll shout it out in her next question. But some bad working title, and it was I. I was literally writing the scene when my mother came up with that idea, and my mother was. Um, was a chef, as I said, she had a food column for the Boston Globe, and she was always testing in her kitchen. And her lover, Ben, was an avid recreational hunter and fisherman. And so sort of the way she conceived of spending more time together was to create this ruse of a cookbook, which was going to be called wild game. It was going to be a wild game cookbook. And so (laughs) Ben would come with some hunk of, you know, venison or boar or this or that. And my mother would transform it. And they would have these test nights that, you know, involve their favorite cocktail, which they called a power pack, which is Mm -hmm. just the most enormous (laughs) Manhattan you've ever seen, and then followed by lots of wine. And so then at the end of one of these evenings, I would be out waitressing or doing whatever I was doing over the years, but I'd come home and let's say they were testing some kind of game hen, you know, one would have been infused with cranberry and the other with garlic and something with just, you know, sage under the skin, or I I don't know what. And I don't know if they had a single taste bud left in their mouth at that point in time. But, you know, we would pick a a sort of winner and create a recipe. And um, yeah, it was it was a real cookbook. And of course, I love the double entendre. Yes, it's so good. Well, and I was going to say the opening scene in the book where Ben comes with squab and you're <laughs> Your mother's so excited because now she gets to do something. Wait a minute. She's excited about pigeon? Totally. She's excited about a bag of bloody pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) But if you knew what my mother could do back in the day with a bag of bloody pigeons, you would be be excited excited. too. I don't know. It's just such a, so much work for so little meat. (laughs) My editor is kosher. And I mean, all this lobster Mm. and clams and so on. She's like, I'm the wrong person for this book. I loved reading about the food. I mean, it definitely was an adventure in, you know, teasing your taste buds for sure. And I swear, I had no idea that I love to write about food, but mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I enjoyed 
I just enjoyed that so much because I literally felt closer to my mom too and remembered, you know, at the time of writing it, she had really, she was losing all of her power, if you will, all this sort of this culinary magnificence that she had. And so sort of remembering how she just used to spin around that kitchen and create these feasts was so fun. Mm. How did she feel about this idea that you were going to write this book about? your life. Yeah. Um, when at the start of the book, when I told her that I was really serious about doing it, I mean, you know, she did not do a happy dance for sure. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who would, who would, mm -hmm. you know, just knowing, but, but I think my mother, I mean, I know my mother trusted me and I, I always told her that I would, you know, represent us fairly and do all that. And, um, and I think, um, you know, she was, she was very helpful. She gave me access to all sorts of old um, scrapbooks and her all her cooking notes. I mean, you might go to Paris and write down that you saw La Tour Eiffel or something. I mean, she just went meal by meal by meal, all just these notebooks that were so helpful about her mm. thinking and her taste. And, um, and, you know, then I had all her articles to turn to. So, she was she was great about it. Um, she answered all my questions. I would say by the time um, she by the time the book was in galleys and I was ready to show her something, you know, her her dementia, which had I think probably been creeping in for far longer than I knew, had really taken hold. Mm -hmm. And although you know, I think she read bits of it. And I know I read lots of it aloud to her during the writing. I I mean, I don't think she could hold a whole narrative in her head anymore. Do you think that made it easier for you to publish this book, to not have to worry about how it would have affected her emotionally? I don't honestly know, because of course, I don't know it any other way at this point. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone could possibly wish <laughs> what's happened to my mother to happen. I mean, it's dementia is just well, yeah, such, no, I mean, but it's, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it was easier. But I, I also truly, I'd say I feel some guilt that she can't, you know, say, can't read it. Renny, I did not do what you said I did on page yeah. 49. <laughs> I, you know, my, my veal had much more Marsala in it. I don't know. But you know, like, I just, it's, it's a, it's a hard feeling or it's um it's responsibility to have the last word. Mm, yes it is. And that yeah. might have been also why I was so careful around telling her story as sure. um with as much compassion as I could. Well, and it didn't come across like you were trying to protect her. I mean, it just really came across to me that you really loved her. You know, the empathy wasn't manufactured in any way. Yeah. Well, thank you. And it was beautiful. I think one of the things we haven't done for our listener is kind of explain how you were complicit in this affair. Ah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like this book is so compelling and I was so jealous from the title to the opening scene to all of the meals, like everything fell into place so perfectly in this wonderful story. Of course, this was your life, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the, the worst experiences, you know, the most damaging experiences make the best stories. But, <laughs> but for you, like you're 14, 
And how are you pulled into her orbit in this way that makes you complicit? Well, so I think I to give a little bit more background on on the couples. Um, my stepfather and Ben Souther, the lover, had been old, old dear friends, and they had been couple friends. So my mom. Malabar, her husband Charles, and the Southers, Ben and Lily, had been couple friends since as long as my mother and Ben had been married, which was, I think, about eight years at the time of the affair or at the time of the kiss. And, Your um, mother and Charles. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, and so when this happened, the, the and the other big piece is that both Lily, Charles, Ben's wife, and and Charles were ill. They were mm-hmm. very frail people. Um, she'd had cancer. My stepfather had had strokes. And, and Ben and my mother were vibrant and young and full of life. I mean, you know, they were not young, but they, you know, they acted much younger than their partners. And so the original, my original role, sort of, I don't remember if it had ever been clearly stated to me that this was what, what I was supposed to do, but it just evolved into this, was after one of these feasts, after these beautiful dinners uh, where they were testing the wild game recipes, I always suggested we take a walk. Um, my mother called them constitutionals. And, you know, so I would sort of cheekily say, who wants to go for a walk? And of course, my stepfather and Ben's wife would demure and um, and Ben and my mom and I would would take a walk out um, out the road. And then they would usually spin off um, to go. We had a, a my mom had a guest house that she rented. So when that was free or vacant, they would go in there um, and I would. I would kind of peel off and just do my own thing. And then we'd sort of all come back in at either different times or usually after everyone else went to bed. Mm. Um, So yeah, that was the start. But then there, as the affair progressed and my mom and Ben met in New York and other places, sometimes I would take care of my stepfather who actually, you know, because of his strokes, couldn't do sort of fine motor skills like, you know, buttoning his shirt cuffs or stuff like that. So, you know, I, I would do a little bit of caregiving and, um, and it was, it was less, you know, it was just a lot of complicit lying and it took its toll on me. I mean, I developed ulcers in high school and, um, yeah, it just, you know, the, the biggest, I mean, the biggest problem with keeping secrets is it, it keeps you from becoming known, right? So. I couldn't tell anyone this secret because of how high the stakes were. And so I didn't talk to my brother about it. I didn't talk to my own father about it. I didn't talk to friends about it. So, you know, you're sort of, you're holding this huge part of yourself away from mentors, boyfriends, friends. And um, yeah, it was a huge relief when finally I didn't have to do that. Well, and I can imagine like there was no one there to tell you like, hey, this is messed up. You- well, yeah, we all only get one childhood, right? right? So it seems normal. Yeah, that's, that's what you knew. And, you know, you're in your mother's light and she's really happy. I know that, you know, you, you carried around a lot of shame and guilt. And when your stepfather, Charles, passed away, that took a huge toll on you. 
Yeah, that was that was devastating. That was one of the first um, first big moments that I just I felt so terrible. I felt so guilty. He'd been so kind and wonderful to all of us, and he just didn't deserve it. Um, you know, the there was kind of this idea that everyone sort of knew. Um, I have no idea if that was true, but it was certainly hard not to see the spark mm. because it was so obvious, the chemistry that existed between my mom and Ben. Um, but yeah, it was, it had to be very difficult. And you, you find yourself, you're living in San Diego and <laughs> you realize you're, you're living the wrong life. And there's yes. this moment when you have to take your life back. <laughs> Did you, you know, and you're dealing with depression. I, I, I guess I have two questions. One, do you think that literature is what saved you or par partially what saved you? And was there a moment like a spark that made you realize this is not my life and I need to change things? There were so many sparks. It was like a firecracker <laughs> going off out there. Um, you know, wait, what was the first part of your question? Did literature save my life? I will say I, I, I feel like three things helped me a great deal. Um, I was in bad shape. Um, I, you know, I had lived sort of this life for so long. Kind of a double just, life, right? Yeah, it just became really confusing. And I was married to the wrong person and I was living in the wrong town and I was sort of doing the wrong job. Um, but I had my, <laughs> coincidence, my father had met um, and married a, a really wonderful woman who owned an independent bookstore in San Diego. And she started pressing Margot. I love yeah. Margot. <laughs> love Margot. She started pressing novels into my hands. And I just remember it so well. It was like um, Jim Harrison's Dalva, uh, Anne Hoffman, Barbara Kingsolver, mm. Zora Neale Hurston, mm -hmm. but all these books that featured, you know, these young women protagonists who were sort of getting themselves <laughs> out of fixes. And it was like, she just, I don't know, I, she, she must knew. have known something. She was just <laughs> right. like, Here, here's some more of this. Right. Um, and so those helped a lot. I also got into therapy, um, which was very, very helpful. And, and the secret came out too. So finally, I was able to talk to people, talk to friends, talk mm, to, you know, and, yeah. and so those things together helped. Um, and what was the spark question? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I know you were dealing with this depression because you'd for yeah. so long kept these secrets. And, you know, what made you decide I have to change my life? I have to change things. And that meant changing everything. Um, well, and I think honestly, it was that the depression was got so severe that I was, I was scared. I was scared for myself. Mm. I was so unhappy. And um, yeah, I just felt like I'm, you know, I, I just felt like if I didn't do something, I, I wasn't going to make it. And so I, you know, in that way that one spectacularly blows up their own life, um, <laughs> I, I left my job, I left the man I was married to, I left this, I left the state. <laughs> And um and almost right away, 
I felt a lot better. I, I arrived in New York, um, you know, went from a beautiful home in Pacific Beach to a, you know, <laughs> a, I can't remember how many square foot tiny, you know, studio over a curry in a hurry and Murray Hill <laughs> curry in, in a hurry <laughs> in New York City yeah. and and suddenly felt less lonely. So I, you know, I just really knew I was I was leaving you know, this career in public policy. I worked for um, a, um, a county supervisor when I was in San Diego. And I'd sort of, over the years, I noticed my, you know, pile of policy journals go down and my pile of literary journals go up. And I, <laughs> I moved to New York and I did all the things maybe 10 years later that people do when they're interested in the literary world in New York. And I started an internship at the Paris Review and, you know, um, and just looked for the next thing. This really is a book about finding yourself, you know, yes. I mean, it's really not about your mother's affair or your involvement. It's about how you come to know who you really are and how to take control of your own life. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's what healing is about. You don't mm -hmm. just sort of put on blinders and move forward. You you look back, you sort through, you acknowledge. Um, I think it was very much about my finding myself. But I think in order to do that, I had to I had to look to the past because you know, arguably, the story of our own lives begins before we're born. Right? We we all are past our parents' stories and their parents' stories, and you know, you have to go through a lot to figure yourself out. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. And then you have your first daughter, your, your first child, I should mm -hmm. say, your daughter, um, and things click and your life starts to come together. Yes. At least I, it seems like it in the book. Has your daughter read the book? You know, she hasn't. She hasn't. So she she's was, 16 now or 17? She's 16 now. Okay. Yeah. She was exactly about to turn 14 you know, she turned Your 14, age, yeah, my <laughs> age, when all this stuff happened the summer before the publication. And, um, and I remember thinking it was so, it was such a gift to actually have a 14 year old in my life. Cause of mm. course, when I reflect back on who I was at 14, I thought I'd signed on for all this. I thought I was in, you know, I've described to you how fun and exciting and everything else it was. And I look at I looked at my daughter at that age, and you know she's lovely, and she's you know I'm her mom, but she's beautiful, and she's smart, and she's funny, and she's poised, and she's also more child than adult. She was a kid at fourteen, mm -hmm. you know, she was just a little kid, and it was so interesting to sort of see that, to yeah, really see that, I and bet. to actually kind of have that moment of like ah. Uh, Look, I can totally imagine making a mistake as a mother. Probably not this one, but you know, <laughs> even if I did, like, even if I did, let's say I kissed a guy and drunkenly told my daughter about that. Here's the difference. The next morning, how fast would I be on her bedside going like, holy, Oops. yeah, <laughs> grandmother mistake of all time, epic failure on my part. Can I have a redo? And it would be discussed. Like, there's just no way that it would have spiraled out of control. So your question was, had she read the book? So she read, I saw her reading an arc of it. And I was like, so just like, oh, it's happening. How interesting. <laughs> and she knew the story already. Sure. 
But what I'll say but reading is, is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think she finished it. And I have chosen, which might be um, you know, my own need to believe what I need to believe, but I actually think it's great. I think, you know, she has a full life of her own. She's got a busy social life, a busy school life. She loves to read, but her genre of choice is sort of world building fiction, not angsty memoir. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, yeah, this is, this is great. And I am the daughter of writers. I mean, I don't think I read my father's novels, you know, despite they're always being available to me till I was in my twenties and thirties. And, you know, he's got 10 or 15 books to his name and I, I probably haven't read all of them. Don't tell. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I like careful. He might that, be our listener. I know. Mm, well. <laughs> I like the fact that he's, she's not, you know, as wrapped up in my internal life as I mean, let me assure right. you, I would have read Malabar's memoir cover to cover back and forth again. And right. I find it, I'm taking it as a success. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's like, you've done something right. You've done it right. And or she end, just thinks I'm not an interesting writer. <laughs> but that's doing it right, too, right? That, that her life is more interesting to her than yours is. Yes, um, exactly. The emphasis is in the right place. Yeah. The ending of the book, and we're not going to give it away, but I just want to say it's so, again, I just feel like so perfect. And as I was reading, I was like, wow, you know, Thank you're asking you. if you if you're doing it right and you're constantly questioning that. Um, but it's just a beautiful ending to, uh, to a story of finding oneself. Um, I have this dream that your daughter will grow up to be a writer and she's going to write a fantasy book about the necklace. <laughs> the, the necklace is the, is the center and no one knows what I'm talking about, but the, the necklace in the story, when you read about it, there's this necklace that means so much to to your mother, to Malabar, and um, your daughter is someday going to read a fantasy, write a fantasy I book about to, this I necklace. will have to give her that idea from you. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be noted as the muse. So the fact that you say that those are more like the books that she likes tells me I may be on to something. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this book is just so amazing. I, I want to talk a little bit more about you and your writing process and mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola, if we can. You Absolutely. started, what was that? Wait, Chad's like, why? What? <laughs> Zoetrope All Story? Zoetrope ah. All Story. Yeah, so that was a big part of my life, um, 1997, when I found Zoetrope, and I was so excited because I, you know, I wanted to be a writer. Wow. And here you are in New York. You've stepped out of what people might consider a really successful life, living in San Diego, and you blew it all up to go to New York and enter the literary world. And then you start Zoetrope, All Story. Yeah. So talk about Zoetrope and how did you meet Francis Ford Coppola? Was it just <laughs> random? or <laughs> It's all so random. I will tell you that... No one should ever follow me for like the five-year plan because I have never had one. I um, I admire people that do so much, but I have always, um, yeah. I, I I'll give my credit for if a if something if a spontaneous opportunity arises, I never don't take it. I'm nice. always fascinated by those serendipitous moments. Mm -hmm. So Zotrop All Story was by far and away, um, one of my absolute favorite jobs of my whole life. Um, and the idea that Francis 
took a chance on me, um, given that absolutely nothing on my resume said, here is a young woman who should start a literary magazine. Um, <laughs> you know, but so the story of how Francis and I met is um, we hadn't met. I had written a letter. I So when I left, when I exited San Diego and moved back to New York, um, I, I spent a year, maybe not quite a year, uh, nine months or so trying to land various dream literary jobs, um, but ended up, you know, just doing a lot of freelance stuff. So I was at the Paris Review. I worked as a fact checker for Travel Holiday magazine. I, you know, I did a whole bunch of this and that and dipped my toes in all sorts of literary and less literary waters. And then I ended up going to something called the Rad Radcliffe Publishing Course, um, which is a, you know, as it sounds, a publishing course um, that was taught out of Radcliffe in Cambridge. And, and because I, I really wanted to um, get a, get a serious job. And I'd, I'd had some, some life experience. I'd run an office and I, you know, been a legislative aide for, mm -hmm. you know, so on and so on. And I was like, oh, am I really going to just sharpen someone else's red pencil for years? Um, and I'm so not above doing my share of, of grunt work, but I just really was trying to figure out a place that I could enter. And, um, I had heard from like three different sources that Coppola wanted to start a literary magazine. So I think I'd first mm. heard rumors about it at the Paris Review. And then at some point, my father's editor, my father was a New Yorker writer, my father's editor had called, I was staying at my dad's cabin and he'd called there looking for my dad and he and I just made small talk and I felt like he mentioned it and so there were <laughs> two or three or four ways that I heard and I was like I'm just going to be a cheeky little someone and I wrote Francis Ford Coppola who I did not know a letter, a letter more that or less saying I think I would like you know you and I both like short stories and hey <laughs> and then of course I went off to the Radcliffe publishing course never heard from him was about to take a job oh my gosh what job was I about to take you know something like um one of those <laughs> travel guide jobs but at least I'd travel the world and write about restaurants and so on at different countries photos or I don't remember which so six months from writing this letter had gone by. This wasn't like a week later. Oh, wow. But I got a call at a completely random hour, late, late, late at night. Um, you know, must have been midnight-ish or 11. And this this guy, he's like, is this Adrian? And I said, yes. And he's like, this is Francis. And oh, my like, God. <laughs> that is that so awesome. literally how it went. <laughs> so I think it was just you know, had gotten shuffled into his bungalow. And one day he picked it up and he just called. And and then we spent, you know, two or three months just talking about short fiction, talking about philosophy, talking about literature. And, and I just remember, you know, right before my 30th birthday, he was kind of like, so do you want to do this? And I wow. was like, Yes. <laughs> that is and then fantastic. I met him after that. And and I, I Zoetrope was so fun. I did it for about seven years. And it was just one of the great experiences of my life. And such a great, I mean, at the time, I think it was um, monumental for, you know, burgeoning writers. And... Oh, it was. So, and it, it actually helps me right now in my current career. So I'm executive director for a literary nonprofit called Aspen Words. But of course, everyone 
we can't tell them that I don't have, you know, everyone who I, I bring out these wonderful writers to Aspen, but of course it's because I published their first story in Zoetrope, you know, like <laughs> 30 years ago. They're all like, okay, your honorarium isn't great, but I'll come. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Tell us more about Aspen Words. Well, it is a wonderful organization. It's part of the Aspen Institute and our programs include I mean, what we're doing right now is our annual Aspen Words Literary Prize, which is a big cash award, $35,000 to a work of fiction that wow. shines a spotlight on a social issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know when this podcast will go live, so probably not relevant to say dates, but in April, we'll be announcing the winner. Um, we have a wonderful summer writing conference um, where we have workshops and, you know, all the usual, but fiction, nonfiction, memoir, uh, science fiction, middle grade, and we convene in Aspen and we have, we get great faculty. We have a Winter Words author reading series where people come to Aspen and give talks. Um, We have a residency program that's just, you know, a treat for writers to come out and spend a month in in Woody Creek, which is right near Aspen. Awesome. Um, So we run all sorts of programs. You, I mean, you really give back. Yes. Well, I, I, I mean, honestly, I feel like I get so much out of it too, but I, there's nothing I love more than discovering new voices, which is what I did with Zoetrope Mm -hmm. and what I did as a book editor. And, and honestly, you know, even in my work now, there's something so wonderful about just giving people either the time and space to write or a scholarship to become a student or those types of things. It's just, um, you know, I think there are a lot of wonderful stories out there and we need to hear all the voices we can hear. Amen. Yeah. You know, back then in my 20s, when I discovered Zoetrope, I never had the courage to submit. And I think a lot of writers, especially women, find themselves in that position where they just feel like they're not good enough. They're not quite there yet. Do you have any advice for our listeners who might feel the same? You know, just... (laughs) Just do it. Just do it. it Just be kind to yourself. But because, you know, it also... Yeah, I mean, rejection is hard. And you are going to get some. It is part of this game. And as much as you can make it sort of less personal, like, you know, don't sort of get all your hopes and figure out every complicated angle in somewhere. I'm sort of a believer in the carpet bombing approach. You know, if you've got a story that's ready to go, send it to a lot of places, you know, either you'll be informed by some feedback. I think what's really tough right now, which makes me very sad is that I think the new, I think no response is sort of the new no. And I think that is just the worst. It's kind of like being ghosted because someone isn't saying, gosh, I can't accept your story because we have so many or I, you know, uh, you just don't hear. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. And I hear that again and again from writers and it, um, find it kind of heartbreaking because I mean, even when I was an editor, um, I answered every, every single submission I got and often late, very late, you know, (laughs) with books and so on. But, you know, if someone has taken a couple years out of their life to write a book, even if it's not your taste or even if it's bad, like, you know, you just need to acknowledge that you've read it and that it's not right for you. And, Mm. um, 
you know, yeah. give feedback if you can. Yeah. So I, the takeaway is don't take it personally and Thanks, just keep Kim. submitting, keep submitting. I think so. And and keep working on your craft. Yeah. I mean, I will say yeah. we all have room for improvement. We all know this. Like, think of, you know, the first draft you wrote of something and how much better it gets. And just remember that no one, not the best writers in the world, no one starts with beautiful, beautiful writing. It just you know, Good to know. You didn't you just, just sit down and write this brilliant book. It it took some yeah, time. <laughs> no, you, you just go back and back and polish yeah. and get better. And mm -hmm. also you just, you get better at it. You mm -hmm. learn with each story and each sentence and everything else. Um, you take stock and, and also just read like your life depends on it because mm -hmm. that's where, you know, whether it's just internalizing rhythms of poetry or understanding thought, like sometimes Yes, I'm working on a novel now, and sometimes I was just, just going to ask you, what are you working on? Yeah, <laughs> sometimes I just literally go and flip through some of my favorite books, and mm. it's so helpful to see, like, oh, this is how Jonathan Franzen starts a chapter. You don't have to take the character out the door; you can just start, you know. But just you need those little refresh, not to use them, but just to just see the breadth of the different ways you can use perspective or. Yeah, time, space, everything, structure. Yeah. Adrian, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really, um, I was telling Chad beforehand, I've been listening to your podcast as I prepared for this, and I just love it. So I'm really happy to be on it, and thank you for having me. Oh, gosh, that makes me feel so good. Well, dear listener, this has been another episode of The Premise. Thank you to Adrienne Brodeur. You can learn more about her on her website at adriennebrodeur.com. And you can visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise. And subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye. You guys can say goodbye, too. Okay, goodbye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>